The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. And we find ourselves in chapter 16 as we continue to just march our way through this incredible gospel, just chapter by chapter, line by line, verse by verse. And we're in a rich, rich part of John's gospel because here Jesus is talking to his disciples and so nearly all the words are in red. And whenever Jesus is talking, we want to listen in. We want to tune in so we hear what the Lord has to say to us. And pray and we'll ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Thank you, Jesus that your word is living, it's active, it's powerful, sharper than a double-edged sword. And so it divides between the soul and the spirit, the thoughts and the intents of our heart. We pray that you would use your word like a sharp knife to cut away the cancerous compromise that we allow to creep in. Lord, we pray that you would use it to feed us. We pray that you would use it to strengthen us. Lord, we pray that you would use it to encourage us, Lord, to build us up and to equip us so that you might send us out into this world, this lost world that desperately needs to know the love of their heavenly Father and of their Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for your blessing on this time. Give us ears to hear in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. I want to begin with a little story for you this evening. A long time ago, there was a bank robber from Mexico. His name was Jorge Rodriguez. You got to roll the R's like that. He operated along the Texas border in the early 1900s, and he was so successful that the Texas Rangers established a special task force in order to try to stop him. Well, late one afternoon, one of the Rangers saw Rodriguez slipping across the border back into Mexico, and he recognized him from the wanted posters. And so he began to trail him at a discreet distance. He watched as the outlaw returned to his home village and mingled with the people in the town square. And then when he saw Rodriguez go into his favorite cantina to get a drink, the ranger slipped in behind him, pulled out his revolver, clicked it, and pointed it at the man's head and said, Jorge Rodriguez, I know who you are. And I've come to get back all the money that you've stolen from the banks in Texas. Unless you give it to me, I'm going to blow your brains out. Well, Rodriguez could see that the man's badge was identified him as a ranger, and he could hear the hostility in the man's voice, but there was a problem. He didn't understand a lick of English. So he began speaking rapidly in Spanish to try to explain, but the ranger couldn't explain or couldn't understand any of the Spanish. At this point, a young boy came up and said in English, I can help. I speak English and Spanish. Do you want me to translate? The ranger nodded, and the boy quickly explained everything that the ranger had said. Nervously now, Rodriguez answered, tell the Texas ranger that I have not spent a cent of the money. If he will go to the town well, face north, and count down five stones, he will find a loose one there. Pull it out, and all the money is there. Please tell him quickly. The boy looked back at the ranger and said, Senor, Jorge Rodriguez is a brave man. He says he is ready to die. (laughs) As it turns out, what you don't know can and may just hurt you. 
That's true in a lot of ways about many aspects of life, but it's particularly true of the subject, concerning the subject I want to talk to you about this evening, and that is the Holy Spirit. You see, a lot of Christians are ignorant concerning the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, both in their own lives and in the world. And because of that, they're suffering and they're languishing in defeat and failure, and they're, they're failing to walk in and experience the fullness of all that God has for them. So tonight, what we have the privilege of doing is looking at what Jesus has to say about the ministry of the third member of the Godhead, the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So let's go ahead and begin reading there in John 16. Pick up with me in verse 5. Jesus says, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. So Jesus is once again talking here about his soon departure. It's a recurring theme in this section of John's gospel. He'd already addressed it before on a number of occasions, but now It's finally starting to sink in, and and, and for the first time, it's dawning on the disciples that they're going to have to face the future without Jesus, and this news hits them like a ton of bricks. Their minds are racing. Their hearts are reeling. Jesus says, I can tell that you're full of grief. That means to be full to the brim, just spilling over with sorrow. And why wouldn't they be? Jesus was their best friend. I mean, how could he possibly be leaving them? This isn't what they had signed up for. Now, you have to understand something. Part of the disciples' struggle stemmed from their misunderstanding of the scriptures, in particular, the ancient biblical prophecies concerning the Messiah. You see, all the religious scholars of the day were of the same uh, ilk and, and believed the same things. And they taught that just prior to the Messiah's arrival, God would send a forerunner. He's prophesied in places like Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, about this one who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. And many, including the disciples, believed that John the Baptist, he fulfilled all of those prophecies. And so there was this heightened awareness and anticipation that the Messiah was going to show up anytime. Then Jesus bursts onto the scene. He starts performing all kinds of miracles. He's healing the sick and casting out demons and all the rest. And he he lined up perfectly with all of the Old Testament prophecies about what the Messiah would look like and what the Messiah would do. And, And so everything was going according to plan. But then out of nowhere, Jesus begins to talk about how he's going to be handed over into the hands of evil men and how he's going to suffer and how he's actually going to be crucified, how he's going to have to die. It didn't compute. You see, in all of the scholars' teachings, there was no category for a suffering savior. Now, that's not to say that the Old Testament doesn't talk about that in places like Isaiah 53. It's just that they neglected those scriptures and amplified and highlighted the ones where the Messiah would come back and reestablish the throne of David where he would right every wrong and usher in the kingdom of God here on earth. And so that's what the disciples and everyone else, for that matter, was waiting for Jesus to do. But now, 
Now it's becoming clear that he was serious about leaving them. To make matters worse, Jesus is here saying, it's actually better for you guys that I go. He says it's to your advantage. That's like pouring salt on the wound. I mean, how could he possibly think that, let alone say that? Clearly, Jesus knew something that they didn't. And that's what he addresses here, why it was important for him to go. And he does so by talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 7, let's go back to that verse. Very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Because unless I go, the advocate will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the thing that excited Jesus about going is he knew that once he ascended into heaven that the Father could then send the advocate, the Holy Spirit, which the advocate means helper. It's another name or title for the Spirit. It's just one of many names that the Holy Spirit goes by in the Scriptures. He's also referred to throughout the Bible as the Spirit of God, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of the Lord God, the Spirit of truth. I love that title. He's called the Spirit of life, the Spirit of glory, the spirit of grace and supplications, and the spirit of Christ. Now, with each name, each title, we are brought into a deeper revelation and understanding concerning his nature and his character and his ministry to us. He is equal with God. He is the third member of the Godhead. And yet, many Christians, again, like I said at the outset, are are ignorant about his work in our lives. And that's a shame because he's not just important. He's absolutely essential to living the Christian life. Let me tell you something. The Christian life isn't just difficult. It's downright impossible without the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who empowers us for service. He energizes and interprets our prayers. He enables us and equips us to say yes to God and to fulfill our calling and purpose and to know God's plan and to say no to sin. You see, Paul tells us that it's the Spirit who works in us both to will and to do God's pleasure. So without the Holy Spirit, quite frankly, you can't even desire the right things, let alone accomplish them. And so without the Spirit, we don't stand a chance in our fight against our own flesh or the devil. And so Jesus says, it's better for you that I go. Let me highlight just a couple of advantages to having the Spirit within you as opposed to having Jesus beside you. One of those advantages is that the Spirit of God can simultaneously address and meet and minister to all the needs of all God's children at the same exact moment. Well, it'd be wonderful to have Jesus standing right here, you have to understand something. When Jesus willingly submitted to humanity, he put himself under all the same restrictions that you and I experience as human beings. We, when he had a physical body, he didn't stop being God, but he placed himself under all the, the limitations of a human body. So what that means is he got tired. <laughs> Did you ever think about that? Jesus got tired. God knows what it's like to feel tired. He knows what it's like to feel hungry. Jesus got hungry. He got sleepy. He got thirsty. And he could only be in one place at a time. 
But the Spirit of God isn't bound by any of those same limitations or constraints. So again, right now, as I'm sharing, what the Spirit of God is doing is he's, at the same moment, ministering to each heart according to the unique and specific needs of the individual. I love that about the ministry of the Spirit. A second advantage of the ministry of the Spirit is that he comes to dwell within us. And Jesus is essentially saying here, having the Spirit within you is better than having me beside you. I mean, imagine if you had Michael Jordan as a personal basketball coach. That'd be pretty cool. But it would also be a bit frustrating, don't you think? Because he might be inclined to say something like this to you. You know, the, basket, the game of basketball is really quite easy. All you have to do, well, do what I do. Just jump higher than everybody else and take the ball and just dunk it right on their heads. And you'll make it every time. It's really quite simple. Just do that. Well, while that's great advice from Mike, I can't jump that high. I can't get above the rim. And so it's a point of frustration. Having Jesus there as a perfect example is kind of like that. He can show you what a life that pleases God looks like, but without him being in you to empower you to both will and do that life, it's going to be very frustrating. And so the Spirit comes within us. I love that. This was brand new, a brand new concept to the disciples. You see, in the Old Testament, we read about the Holy Spirit coming upon individuals, albeit it always happened periodically and it happened for a specific time or for a specific purpose or season. We never read about him dwelling in a person or let alone remaining with them indefinitely, but all of that changes dramatically after the resurrection of Jesus. In the New Testament, we read about that same spirit, the spirit of God that in the Old Testament hovered above the mercy seat first in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. That same spirit who dwelt in the very Shekinah, the manifest presence of God, it comes to dwell inside of God's people. Let's read this verse together out loud. It talks about that fact. This is 1 Corinthians 6:19. Paul writes, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. So whereas in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit primarily dwelt in a place that changes and shifts so that now under the new covenant, he dwells not in a place, but now in a people. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't dwell in this building. I'm not sure if you knew that or not. He dwells in a people. So tonight, you didn't just come to church. You are the church. So when you walk out those doors, the church gathered becomes the church scattered. And you bring the presence of God with you wherever you go. You see, the Holy Spirit, he doesn't function or move or act in a vacuum. He, he works through a body. And, and Jesus, just like Jesus, needed a body in which to fulfill God's plan. So too, the Spirit works through his body today. That's us. We are the body of the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ. We are his temples and his tools. And he wants to use us to glorify Jesus as witnesses in this lost world. So what does that ministry look like in the world? That's who he is to us. But now Jesus is going to go on to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world. So let's read that beginning in verse eight. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, 
Those are three topics we might expect the Holy Spirit to prove the world to be in the wrong about. And yet there's some surprises beginning in verse 9. He says, about sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. All right, let's talk about each of those things. As I said, there are some surprises in here. The first thing that Jesus says is when the Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of sin. He says, specifically, he's going to prove the world to be in the wrong about sin. Now, that same word translated prove can also be translated as convince or as convict. The same Spirit whom God sends to, to comfort some is sent to bring conviction to others, depending on the state of the person and the need. I had a Bible college professor who used to say it like that, like this. He, he used to say, you know, God sends his spirit to comfort the afflicted, but he also sends the spirit to afflict the comfortable. And I like that. You know, if you're in hardship today, if you're going through it, If you're in grief, if you're in pain, if you're in travail, if you're in sorrow, then the Holy Spirit is there to comfort your heart. It's one of his roles. It's one of his names. He's named the comforter, and I love the ministry of the Spirit as he comforts us as no other person can. There are times when words fail, and it's in those moments that God, the comforter, in the person of the Spirit comes to us. But there are other times when what is needed is not a word of comfort. There are times when we get too comfortable. You know what I'm talking about. And in those seasons, God sends the Spirit to conflict or to afflict the comfortable. And notice, too, how Jesus points out that it's the Spirit's job to convict the world of sin. I think this is an important point. It's not my job, nor is it your job. (laughs) Sometimes we forget that. God never intended us to preside over this world as judge and jury. You know, people point to others and they say, well, what do you think about that person? What do you think about that person? They, they want me to stand in judgment over them. Uh-uh, that's way above my pay grade. That job of, of God has already been filled and he's not taking application. Somebody say amen. You know, then what's our job? Well, before Jesus ascended into heaven, He gathers his disciples for what would be the last time. And he he says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you're going to be my witnesses. First in Jerusalem, that was like their backyard. Then in Judea and Samaria, the surrounding region. And ultimately, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, he says we're to be his witnesses. Notice what he doesn't say. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will become my prosecuting attorneys. No, he doesn't say you will become the judge and the jury. No, he says you're going to be a witness. Now, the job of a witness is very simple and very straightforward, isn't it? All the witness is required to do is recount their own personal experience. They talk about what they saw, what they heard, and what happened. That's your job. That's mine. We just talk about, this is what Jesus did for me. This is how Jesus changed me. And we allow the spirit of the Lord to bring the conviction. We don't have to convince. We don't have to convert. We don't have to condemn anybody. Sometimes we try to talk people into being a Christian. I love what my dad used to say. He goes, "Ah, I don't bother with that. You know, 
If I can, I figure if I can talk somebody into becoming a Christian, then somebody else is liable to come along and they'll talk them out of becoming a Christian. So I don't have, it takes all the pressure off of us. We don't have to convince. We aren't called to condemn. Take note of that. We aren't called to bring conviction. We are simply called to be witnesses. You know, I make a lousy Holy Spirit, and my guess is you do too. And whenever I end up trying to do the Holy Spirit's job for him, which is a temptation allowed, I end up coming across as condemning, condemnational. However, when I step back and allow him to do his job, the arrow always hits its mark. As an example of this, when you read about Peter, he stands up there in Acts chapter 2, after he was filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and he just boldly preaches the gospel. He is a witness for Jesus. He talks about the things he had experienced, the things that he had heard, and the response that day is that the crowds who gathered were cut to the heart, and they responded with one voice saying, what must we do? And that is always the result of Holy Spirit anointed preaching. It leads to this point of crisis. This, it elicits a response. In their case, what do we need to do? And Peter says, be baptized and be converted in the name of Jesus. Now, there's something else I want you to notice here about what Jesus says concerning the work of the Spirit. He says that the Spirit's going to come and he's going to prove the world to be in the wrong about sin, singularly. Not sins generically or plurally. There are many sins, I think you'll agree with me, that the Spirit could convict the world of. This world is just baked in sin. I mean, he could convict us of lying, cheating, stealing. The list goes on and on and on. But instead, the, the, the Spirit focuses his ministry on just bringing conviction of one sin. What is that sin? Well, he tells us about sin, verse 9, because people do not believe in me. Why does the Holy Spirit focus on this sin, the sin of unbelief? Well, I'll tell you why. Because it's the greatest of all sins, and this is the root of every other sin. Did you know that all other sins stem from this root sin of not believing in Jesus? It's a failure on our part to believe in, to trust in who Jesus is, the word that he has spoken over our lives. And that just leads into all the other sins in our life. Think of it like this. Think of it in terms of roots and fruits. The behaviors are like the fruits, but the root is the unbelief. So let's just apply that personally. The problem with you isn't that you have a lying problem. It's not that you have a lust problem. The problem isn't that you lose your temper and fly off the handle. The problem in all of those instances is a lordship issue. It always comes down to who you are putting your trust in. That is always the issue. Now, oftentimes, preachers confuse this, and so they end up focusing their messages on trying to get people to change or modify or correct their behaviors. And that's so backwards. Because, you see, the behaviors are just the symptom of the real root of the issue. The issue isn't behavioral, it is belief. And once a person, and let's just personalize this, once you believe who God says you are, believe what God's word says, believe who Jesus is, 
the behaviors just kind of fall in line and you naturally begin to change. That's why the Holy Spirit focuses on this in the sin of unbelief, because it is principally the, the only sin that matters. You know, one day we're going to we're all going to die and we're going to stand before God. And, and because of what Jesus says here, I'm convinced that on that day, he's really only going to have one question for us. Oftentimes we imagine, you know, ourselves standing before the pearly gates and, and maybe you picture Peter standing there and he's got the big clipboard to see who gets in. And then, and then these angels roll out like maybe a big TV screen, giant plasma or whatever it is, LCD TV screen, something like this one. And there in front of everybody with a big long line, we imagine that God's going to just run through the video of our lives slowing down, rewinding, and highlighting all the times that we've failed. Oh, what about that day? That was, a, that was a rough one for you, huh? Okay, let's keep playing and hits the play button, pauses on another sore spot, and just runs through the video. Uh-uh. No, no, no. You see, I don't think it's going to play out like that, and I'll tell you why. All of those sins have already been paid for. Every dark deed Every act of betrayal, every lie, every act of bitterness or jealousy, all of the adultery, all of it has been covered by the blood of the Lamb, with only one exception. And that is, if you live your entire life choosing to reject God's payment for the penalty of your sin, if you hold God at arm's length and say, I don't need Jesus as Messiah, I'll do it on my own, then there is no payment for that sin. And so based on that fact, I believe the one question God will have for us on that day, the day of judgment, is what did you do with my son Jesus? Did you put your faith in him? Did you believe in him? Did you confess your sins to him? Because to fail to do so is to commit the unforgivable sin. People often want to know, have I committed the unforgivable sin? And I'm always quick to point out, no, I can confidently say you haven't done that yet. And they say, how do you know? And I'll say, well, because you're still standing there breathing. As long as you have breath in your lungs and a heart beating in your chest, then you have time to repent. And to fail to repent is the only unforgivable sin. Someone say amen. That means if you're not dead tonight, God's not done with you. You can put your faith in Jesus. You can respond to the witness of the Holy Spirit. You say, how do I do that? Well, Jesus made it real simple for us. He said that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that at that moment there is no waiting period, there is no 90-day probation period. In that exact moment, you are saved. Your name is written in a book called the Lamb's Book of Life. All of your sins, everything you've ever done wrong in that instant is washed away. Not just the things you did in the past, but the sins you're going to commit tomorrow too, praise the Lord. All of it gets washed away. And you can have a clean conscience. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's that easy. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a moment. So the Spirit comes and he convicts the world of sin. But not sins generally. Sin specifically. The sin of not believing in Jesus. The second thing he does is he comes to convict of righteousness. 
of righteousness, Jesus says, because I'm ascending to the Father and you'll see me no more. If sin deals with that which is wrong, then righteousness is the other side of that coin. Righteousness deals with what is right in God's sight. And this one's important. Why would the Holy Spirit bring conviction of righteousness? I'll tell you why. Because deep down inside, every person on this planet wrestles with the same question. We all want to know, have I done enough? Have I done enough for God to accept me, for God to welcome me into heaven? And for most people, because they don't have a clear answer, they kind of operate under the assumption that if there is a God, he probably grades on a curve. And so they make it their life's mission to just make sure that they do enough good deeds so that at the end of the whole deal, their good deeds outweigh their bad ones. And, and maybe that's the, uh, the, the, the life mission that you're kind of living according to. You figure, I'm not perfect, but hey, nobody is, so I'm better than I am bad. And they figure as long as they fall somewhere on the upper half of the scale, probably God's going to be okay. Now, there's a really convenient thing about this belief system, and that is that it's really easy to find people that you're doing better than. I can always find some guy or some girl that's just gone off the rails, and hey, we always kind of fall back on, well, I haven't murdered anybody, <laughs> you know, as though that were the gold standard for righteousness in God's economy. No, you know, we all fall short of the glorious standard of God. And, and the other thing is that when Jesus comes along, he kind of upends this whole kind of line of thinking and this earthly logic. Why? Because he lived a unique life, and he was constantly raising the bar for everyone about what it means and what it looks like to live a righteous life. For instance, one day a, a religious young guy, a, a rich guy, we know him as the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he essentially asks the question that we're talking about. He says, what good thing do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus quickly, you know, recites a handful of the Ten Commandments and the guy puffs his chest out a little bit and he's checking the boxes and he says, all of these I've done from my youth. So what does Jesus do? He raises the bar and he says, ah, that's great. One thing you lack, go and sell everything you have. And then come and follow me, which was the crux of the whole issue, giving his life in, in submission to Jesus. And the guy we read walks away sorrowful because he had so much and he was unwilling to give it up. He was a great candidate, someone anybody would want on their team. But Jesus continued to raise the bar until this guy ultimately walked away. And he was constantly doing that kind of thing. Jesus said, it's not good enough that you don't commit adultery. He says, if you even look at a woman lustfully, I'm telling you, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Why? Because the seed of that act of immorality has already given birth in your heart. Just in the same way, he says, anger is, is um, murder in an immature form. So if you're angry with someone in your heart, it's as though you've already murdered them. And while the crowds are just kind of reeling at the impact and the weight of those statements, Jesus says, oh, check this out. 
He points over at the religious people of the day, the Pharisees. These were guys that had given their entire lives to not only fulfilling the 613 commands that you find in the Pentateuch, but in addition to that, they had written the Mishnah, and they'd, they'd come up with all kinds of rules on their own, and they, they, they strictly, adamantly adhered to all these rules. And Jesus says, you see those guys, the Pharisees? Because I'm here to tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the religious leaders of the day, then you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That, you have to imagine, let all the air out of everyone's balloon. But then he made matters even worse and compounded things later on in the same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, by saying in Matthew 5.48, I'll tell you what, just be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Sinless perfection? Really? Like that's the standard? That's the goal? That can't really be what God's looking for, can it? And the answer is yes. Well, how do we know that's true? Because after Jesus rose from the dead, we read of him ascending into heaven. And by receiving Jesus in that way, it was as though God the Father was giving his stamp of approval on the life of Jesus and saying and signaling to the world, in effect, this is the righteousness I will accept. Well, as you can imagine, that creates a huge problem for us, all of us. If Jesus' righteousness is the only righteousness that God will accept, then what hope do any of us have, right? And, and of course, the answer is absolutely none. None, I'm afraid. We're all sunk. That is, apart from him. You see, thankfully, what Jesus does is he offers to impute his righteousness to us in what has to be the greatest trade that has ever been proposed. Jesus says, you give me your sin and I'll gift you my righteousness. Hallelujah. It says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let's read this together out loud. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the greatest trade. God says, I'm going to treat my son the way you deserve to be treated so that I can treat you the way he deserves to be treated. And what the Spirit does is he works hard to come alongside of us and to convince us of our need for God's righteousness, that it's not something that we can earn, it's not something that we can merit, it's not something that we can achieve, it's not something that we can muster up or work out on our own. It is something that we must receive by grace through faith. Praise the Lord. Well, there's a third work of the Holy Spirit, and we'll close with this one tonight. The Spirit not only comes to convict the world of sin, the sin of not believing in Jesus, convict the world of righteousness, this idea that Jesus lived the righteous life that you need. Thirdly, the Spirit comes to convict of judgment. Now, when we hear the word judgment, it sends a shiver down the backs of our spines, and our minds typically immediately jump to, to that event described in the Bible that we know as the great white throne judgment. We know it as Judgment Day. On that day, it says the books will be opened and we will all give account for our lives. So that's where our mind goes. But notice, that's not the judgment Jesus is speaking about here. He says the Spirit's going to convict of judgment, but not just any judgment. Look at verse 11. About judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The judgment 
the Spirit wants to bring into your conscious awareness is the judgment of the devil. Now, make no mistake about it. There is a day of coming judgment. The Bible is clear about that. In fact, it says in Hebrews 9.27 that it is appointed unto men once to die and then to face judgment. So we are going to have our date with destiny. We're all going to stand before God on that day, and we're going to have to give account for what we did with God's Son. But the good news today for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ is that we don't have to face the great white throne judgment because Jesus already endured God's judgment on our behalf when he went to the cross. You see, he took God's wrath that we might get his righteousness. He bore the curse in the form of those thorns so we might be crowned with God's glory. He died for your sin so that instead of dying in your sin, you can now die to your sin. Sin's power has been broken off of you. When Jesus hung on the cross, the devil thought that he was winning. But at that very moment when the devil let out a triumphant cry and the skies went dark, Jesus said, it is finished. And it was the devil himself who was doomed forever in that moment. Can someone please praise the Lord with me? Say amen. uh, Paul puts it like this in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. This is a bit lengthy, but I, again, want to read it together with you out loud. He said, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The devil had been keeping a long list of all of your shortcomings, all of your faults, and all of your failures. And you know what Jesus did with that list? He took it and he nailed it to the cross. And then I love how it says he disarmed the powers and the authorities. That is a legal transaction. And the spirit realm works and functions in accordance with the the laws of the spiritual universe. And so what God is telling us here is that whatever leverage, whatever authority, whatever power that the enemy had over you as God's kid, the moment you confessed your sins, the moment you pledged your allegiance to Jesus, that power was once and forever irrevocably broken. Praise the Lord. You need to, you need to see that, and you need to know it, and you need to, you need to claim it. I, I mean, I feel the spirit of the Lord on this, that there are some of you who are in bondage tonight because you don't know that the enemy has been disarmed. His power has been broken. Jesus made a mockery of the devil, triumphing over him at the cross. So all we're waiting for now is for the sentence to be carried out. And I'm here to tell you that day is coming soon. You see, right now, The devil knows that his days are numbered, and so he's working overtime. I think you'd agree with me on that. 
And he's working hard and he's working fast and he's working furiously and he's trying to drag down as many people with him as possible. And the reason he's fighting so hard against you is because he sees what's in you. He knows the potential that you carry, the divine potential to release God's healing, to release God's power, to walk in God's victory. There is a calling on your life that is incredible. And if you would step into it and step out of that bondage and step out of those broken patterns and cycles of failure and into God's calling, you would never be the same. And the devil knows that that's why he's coming at you so hard right now. And so the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, he's working in us. He lives in us. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he dwells in you, but he's working through you. And he's, as you share, as you witness, as you testify, as you live out your life, as you carry the influence of the Spirit wherever you go, releasing the fragrance of God's love, releasing the fragrance of his grace and mercy. The Spirit is working in conjunction with that testimony and with that witness, and he's convicting the world of sin. He's drawing people to Jesus. He's convicting them of their need for righteousness, that who you are and what you do on your own, apart from the work of the cross, it's not enough. It will never be enough, and he's convicting the world of the fact that the devil has already been judged, and God has a plan. And our job, our job is to respond. As the Spirit would testify and bear witness in your heart, your only job is to respond. And this is so crucial. This is so critical. Because, you know, we don't have to respond. It's not compulsory. And Jesus is a gentleman. He he knocks on the door of our heart. He doesn't kick the door over. He doesn't go Chuck Norris on the, the door of your heart. And so we can hold the spirit at arm's length. We can stiff arm the spirit of God. Oh, heaven forbid it. But we can reject his witness. We can hold him at bay. We can resist him. You know, we're all familiar with the the story of the sinking of the Titanic in the early 1900s and and how it set sail on that ill-fated journey And how late one night they hit the iceberg in the North Atlantic Sea and and the ship sank. It was supposed to be the unsinkable ship. And and that night over 1,500 people died. And of course, there's a great tragedy, one of the great maritime tragedies in the history of the world. But, But something you might not know about that story is they received, that is the Titanic, received a number of warnings prior to them striking the iceberg. They received no less than nine different warnings. The last one came in the form of a a telegram sent to them in Morse code. There was another ship that was in the area, the Californian, and it signaled with haste to the Titanic, and it said that they were going to stay where they were and that they were going to stop sailing that night because they were surrounded by ice and that the Titanic should do the same. In response, the Titanic's wireless operator, a guy by the name of Jack Phillips, responded, keep out, shut up, I'm working here. He never sent the message to the bridge, and of course the rest of the story is is history. 
He had the critical information that could have saved countless lives, but he resisted it. And what he did with that message, so many today do with the nudge of the Holy Spirit. You can resist him to the point where your heart grows hard and calloused. So instead of yelling shut up to the Spirit, my prayer for all of us is that God would give us hearts that are soft, that we wouldn't resist him, but that today, if we hear his voice, we wouldn't harden our hearts, but that we would respond in faith. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for this gathering. Thank you for your people. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that you are here in this gathering, that you are working, that you are moving, that you are convincing, that you are drawing, that you are wooing. Don't you know that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? God has been so good to you. He's been with you every moment and every hour and every day of your life. You've never lived a moment apart from his grace. You say, grace, my life has been hard. I've had challenges. I've had setbacks. I've had trials and struggles. Nothing has gone right for me. If there is a God, then surely he couldn't love me. If he did love me, then why did he allow this or that? And the truth of the matter is we live in a broken, fallen, fractured world. And there is a very real person called the devil. He's probably not the guy you're thinking of with the horns and the tail and the pitchfork and the red jumpsuit. But the devil wants to destroy you. And the means and the method that he uses to do that is lies. And he feeds us. He spoon feeds us lies, lies about God, lies about life, lies about the nature of God. And he feeds us lies about ourself and our identity because he wants to keep you trapped in bondage. He doesn't want you to know the joy of salvation. He doesn't want you walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants to keep you right where you are, locked in chains. He wants you chained to your past. He wants you chained to your addictions. He wants you in bondage to your fears and your anxieties. And yet the Holy Spirit is here tonight, and he's drawing you. He's wooing you. And can I just encourage you in this moment to just surrender? Surrender your heart, open your mind, open your will, and let him in. To resist him is to resist love incarnate. To resist him is to resist your own comfort. To hold him at arm's length is to hold your very own life at arm's length. Jesus says, let me in and watch and see the difference that I can make. Taste and see the goodness of the Lord. And maybe there's a struggle going on, and that struggle is part of the internal reality of this spiritual war. The devil doesn't want to give up, and maybe you don't want to give in, but you know it's time, and you know the Spirit is calling you. He's calling you home. He's calling you by name, and he's saying, I love you, and I've proven my love for you. When I went to the cross, and I took your place, and I died for your sins, now if you'll put your faith in me, I'll give you my righteousness. I'll forgive your sin. I'll, I'll come in and make my home inside of your heart, and you'll never be the same. If that's the desire of your heart, if you want the forgiveness of sins, if you want a new heart and a new life, you just slip your hand up. I want to pray with you right where you are in your seat. Praise the Lord. Thank you for those who are raising their hands. Who else would say tonight, I need forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus.
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you're moving, that you're working, that you're drawing, that you're wooing. And for those of you who just raised your hands, let me lead you in a prayer. And this prayer is, is very simple. Prayer is just another word for talking to God. But if you'll pray this prayer and mean it in your heart, and God will hear from heaven and he'll respond. Just say it with me. Say it together out loud. Let's all say it together out loud as a way of reaffirming our vows to the Lord, as it were. Just say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me and coming to this earth on a rescue mission. I surrender my heart. I receive your forgiveness. Please fill me with the Holy Spirit and help me to live for you each and every day till I see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.